podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. At Discount Tire, we know your time is valuable. Get 30% shorter average wait time when you buy and book online. Did you know Discount Tire now sells wiper blades? Check out our current deals at DiscountTire.com or stop in and talk to an associate today. Discount Tire. Let's get you taken care of. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Mobile phone companies say they offer home internet. But if their internet comes from a cell phone network, you should know. It's just phone internet, not home internet. Keep your home up to speed with Cox. Cox internet is faster and has more reliable download speeds than 5G home internet. Cox is the real home internet you're looking for. Based on Cox analysis of UCLA speed test intelligence data, Q3 2022 and Cox serviceable areas, visit cox.com internet for details. Welcome to a Celtic State of Mind. I'm Paul John Dykes, and today I'm delighted to be joined by XL Alan Thompson. Alan, we're in the heart of Manchester in the offices and the studio of the Stretford Paddock. So, a big shout out to the Stretford Paddock guys. Thank you for inviting us in. It's going to be an absolute pleasure to have a wee chat to yourself about your new book, Tomo Now. I always look at footballers and you, you look at some of them and think, yeah, there's not a book in them, but I've always felt there's a book in yourself. Um, when did you actually come to the realisation this was for you, you're going to start this project and get your life story out there? Well, it's funny really because I've been asked over the years by, by numerous people to do a book while ex-teammates of mine, Chris Sutton, John Orton, Lenny, uh, Stillian, Petroff, you know, these lads have all been doing books and it. And I, I was exactly the thinking of what you've just said. You know, I don't think I've got a book in this type of thing. So the people I spoke to would say, listen, just let us be the judge of that. You just talk and you just answer questions and, and, and we'll be the judge if you've got a book in you. We think you have type of thing. So it was in between uh, COVID hitting and lockdowns and stuff like that. Someone got in touch and uh, I thought maybe theirs, you know, I took a little bit of persuading over the years to do it. But I just thought, you know, now's the time to... I'm approaching 50, you know, late 40s, so let's get it out there. Now, what I found really interesting chatting to you on the way through to the studio, Alan, is the fact that um, you got together, you actually moved in with the author, uh, the ghostwriter, so that he could get right in about your story, right under the floorboards. Aye, it was, um, it's not easy. I think even if you go and visit family in different parts of the country or different parts of the world and their family members, it's always difficult to move into someone else's house with or if you go on holiday with other families, it's always difficult because you've got your habits and stuff like that and some bad habits and some good. But uh, no, even if I go and stay at my parents' house in Newcastle when I go to Newcastle to visit, it's... It's not awkward, but it's, you know, you like your own space. So moving into a complete stranger's house with his wife and kids was um, was difficult. I'm not going to I'm not gonna lie about it, but uh, they made me really welcome. Um, it was hard work doing it, you know, six, seven, sometimes eight hours a day blocks. Chatting about your life from being a kid to the present day was, uh, it was draining at times. But I think I'm looking back on it, I'm pleased I'd done it in, in terms of, going in there five or six days and smashing it and, 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 and getting out and then letting him get on with the writing, you know. 
You know, when I, I look at the title, a Geordie boy, um, the fan bases in Newcastle and Celtic are, are famous. I mean, I've been to a lot of Newcastle games and obviously a lot of games at Celtic Park. What do you think the similarities are between those two sets of fans? Um, I don't think, well, they're not a million miles apart, you know. Glasgow's what? 90 miles north of the border and Newcastle's south, just south of the border. So I think the people are similar from, you know, industrial cities and, you know, working men and, and people who go out and earn their hard-earned cash to, to travel to games and watch games and support their club. And no, they're very similar in their approach to football and the style of football they like and the kind of players they like. So now there's, there's a definite similarity between, you know, as you say, the Geordie boy type of thing, yeah. Yeah, I mean, again, I always think about footballers as kids and signing for their hometown club, if you like. How proud did that make your parents and your wider family? I think as a, as a kid, you know, you'd be a Celtic fan as a kid, so it would have been your dream to pull on the hoops. For me, it was to pull on the black and white stripes. And I was lucky eventually when I was well, I was nearly 18 by the time I got in the team because I had a serious car accident when I was 16. So it was touch and go whether I was going to walk again, let alone go and make a career in football again. So um, it was a proud moment where two years down the line after my car accident, I eventually pulled on the black and white stripes. There was a lot of stress involved in the process of getting back fit, not just for me mentally and physically, but no doubt for my parents and family as well. But I had a big support system around us. And uh, eventually when I got there and played in front of the, uh, the Gallagher end was a dream come true without a doubt. You know, looking at the images that appear in the book and the story about that serious car accident, Alan, you're that busy as a youngster trying to make it in the game, recuperating from that injury. Was it a lot later that you started considering how that affected you, how that might have even affected your career? Um, yeah, I think you look back on it over the over the years when you do look back and, yeah, probably an incident that has shaped you really as a person how you think about things uh, how you appreciate things and um, not to take things for granted without a doubt because as I said it was touch and go um, first few weeks in hospital was whether I was going to walk again let alone be able to go on a football pitch and, and get involved in physical contact and stuff like that so um, no it definitely has an effect on your mental but how you think about things yeah yeah you know when you're looking at the guys you come through the ranks with um, talk to me about the kind of bond you have with players like Lee Clark, and that lasts a lifetime, doesn't it? <clears throat> yeah, excuse me. Um, yeah, Steve Watson, Lee Clark. Um, these lads are, you know, they've, they've been friends since six, seven year old. So, and then now, still, you know, thirty, forty years on, we're still close friends and uh, still have a close bond. And yeah, it was difficult for me. Not going to lie, when I was when I was in hospital and I had my big neck brace on when I was sixteen, then seventeen. And uh, these lads are going on and getting in the first team at Newcastle under uh, Ozzy Ordiles, then Kevin Keegan, and I'm sitting in the stand watching my best mates get in the team. It was it was frustrating, proud proud for me to watch them get in the team, but I just wanted to be out there alongside them. So I had to take a back seat and eventually then get alongside them. So yeah, brilliant. When I'm looking through your career, I'm always obviously looking for the Celtic connections. And back then, Roy Aiken and Mark McGee were the senior pros. Um, how were they with the young guys? Absolutely fantastic. Um, I, I, there must have been early thirties at the time, Roy and, and Mark, but they were they were great around the dressing room. Um, they were great at communicating um, with the players they were playing with, and, and and the young lads like myself and the lads I've mentioned, Lee Clark, Steve Watson, 
Steve Howie, Robbie Elliott, they, they give us a lot, you know, so it was great for us to sit and watch how senior pros done things who played in big games and played for big clubs and it, mentioning Roy and, and Mark McGee, even when I was at Bolton Wanderers, we had we had ex-players from Celtic as well, Andy Walker and Owen Coyle had a big affinity with Celtic, John McGinley was a big Celtic man, so as a young lad I was I was always around people who never shut up about Celtic, so I got to hear a lot about it, you know. So they're planting seeds because obviously it comes to fruition, you're, uh, you know, the middle of your career. When you're at Newcastle, a World Cup winner gives you your debut. Uh, what did you take away from your time working with Ozzy Ardilas? Couldn't understand a word he was saying, um, <laughs> but no, he was brilliant with us. Um, it wasn't a wasn't a brilliant time in Newcastle's history. So he went to the youth and he looked at the youth and he thought they were good enough and he put them in. But you know, from a kid watching him play for Spurs with Ricky Veer and Glenn Hoddle and all that, to be your manager. Um, he was fantastic. He just wanted us to enjoy our football. He wanted us to enjoy having the ball at our feet, passing it around. He wanted to to entertain the crowd as you want. And even just in training, he joined in and he was. You could see how what a player he must have been when he played. You know, he'd be training with a fag in his mouth and he'd still be the best player on the pitch. So, no, it was brilliant for us as young lads to to have a World Cup win and Diego Maradona's best pal as your manager. Yeah, and I remember. Spurs played a testimony when Maradona was the guest player and it was through Ardilas, you know, his friendship with him. I was there. I was there. I was on trial at Spurs at the time. It was Tony Galvin's testimonial and I was 13, maybe 14 and I was down in London and uh, I was staying in digs with with a young Jamie Redknapp at the time Um, and it was John Moncur Senior was the head of youth at Tottenham at the time and there was a game in the night match and it was Tottenham, Tony Galvin as I said and and Maradona was playing as a guest so just as a young lad just just watching him warm up and stuff like that the things he was doing with the ball was like you watch stuff on YouTube of him now and he was doing that kind of stuff and it was just like wow he was my hero or one of my heroes so to get to watch him as a kid was brilliant Superb and you're talking about heroes a lot of Newcastle fans um, hero worship Kevin Keegan he comes in as the the next manager and he goes on this, this spell and I was saying this earlier on where he built a very entertaining team a lot of neutrals kind of fell in love with Newcastle then you were part of the beginning of the Keegan uh, revolution but you decided at your point it was time to move um, at that stage how difficult was it did you think Maybe I'll come back once I've proved myself, Alan. Um, I think when I did leave, yeah, I think you do think, yeah, one day maybe I'll go and do well for another club or a couple of clubs and and get a, a dream move back to Newcastle. But that wasn't to be. And and as I said earlier, it was I'd been injured for nigh on two years after the car crash, and I just wanted to play football. So I didn't really want to be sat in the stand. I'd done that enough already in my early career. So um, it was gut wrenching for me to leave Newcastle to go to Bolton Wanderers. But um, that dream move didn't come back. But there was one or two good moves along the way. Oh, definitely. I mean, when you look at that Bolton team, though, again, from a neutral perspective, they were a team that you took an interest in because they were obviously going places, two promotions, um, a cup final. You had guys like Stubbsy coming through, yourself, McAteer, Jason McAteer, and some of the excels that you mentioned, including Stevie Fulton um, as well. Yeah, Chopper Fulton. And they're all planting seeds about Celtic, which which is a good thing. Do you think it did get to the point, though, Alan, that you reached the heights that you could possibly attain with Bolton and you had to take another step up? Yeah, I think I'd had two promotions to the Premier League. One as champions, one through the playoffs, which is a great way of getting promoted. It's probably the toughest way, the most stressful way, but when you when you win the playoff final at Wembley, it's some, it's some buzz. So two promotions, two relegations, 
and the, the, the second relegation you know you've played in the Premier League twice with Bolton and it was just you want to stay at that level and no disrespect to Bolton it's a fantastic club um, had great years there were great players great managers Bruce Rioch took me there Colin Todd was his number two then Colin Todd went on to be the manager um, and you just wanted to get when you've played at that level you want to try and stay at that level and um, yeah I appreciate what Bolton did for me and I hope Bolton appreciate what I did for them but it was time to move and when you did I found it interesting that one of the managers one of several managers that was interested was indeed Martin O'Neill did you talk to Martin O'Neill at Leicester? Yeah I spoke to Martin Um he tried to push me to go to Leicester, but at the time I was no disrespect to Leicester. They were they were doing well. They were you know the always top half of the table. They were getting the cup finals and things like that. But I was talking to to, to to big clubs and and I wanted to play. You know I've been at Newcastle and then Bolton and I I wanted to get to a level where where I thought I deserved to be. You know. Well, you, you joined your first European Cup winners in Aston Villa. And again, when I look at that, I look at Dion Dublin, Stan Collymore, Benito Carboni. And it was a successful period in that the club gets to the FA Cup final. Alan, and that was a run you were involved in. Were you disappointed to miss out on the final against Chelsea? Oh, yeah, hugely. Um, we done some team shape for the game on the Thursday at uh, Bodymore Heathfield as training ground. And... And I was in a couple of the teams that got set up, so I thought, you know, I've got a right good chance of starting against Chelsea on Saturday. And then, lo and behold, Saturday comes and I wasn't even on the bench. So, um, huge disappointment, huge disappointment. Villa lost the game 1 0 to Chelsea. Um, lo and behold, I'd be, I'd probably four or five months down the line, I'd be moving to, to Celtic. And it was bizarre because I was in the, in the bar at Wembley while the cup final was on and uh, ended up talking to Chris Sutton. He was in the same boat I was at Villa. He was in the same boat at Chelsea. He got left out of their squad. He wasn't stripped either. So it was the first time I'd met Chris. Uh, I knew of him, had friends who played with him for England under-21s, Lee Clark, Steve Watson, who I'd heard all about them. They said he was a right toe rag. So, um, so when I eventually got to meet him, I thought, he's all right, him, he's a decent lad. But little did we know, three or four months, I think it might have been down the line after the, the cup final at Wembley, that um, we'd be teammates at Celtic. It's incredible when you think of the disappointment of that FA Cup final for the both of you. Three years later, you're playing in a European final. It's astonishing, Alan. Aye, I think we'd both had slightly tough times. I don't think the transfer fee helped Chris when he went to Chelsea. Um, ten and a half million quid's a big transfer fee back then, a big, really big one. Plus, he fell over the ball three times on his debut, uh, which didn't help him with the Chelsea fans. I thought we've signed a dud here. But um, when I eventually got to play with Chris, he was anything but a dud. He was a fantastic player. And again, fair play to Martin O'Neill because he's been given a knock back but he comes back in a second time for Celtic. Yeah, I think Martin was good at that. He was good at seeing people who, who had potential who, who hadn't quite fulfilled the potential, if you want. I certainly hadn't fulfilled my potential at Villa, I admit that. And Chris will probably admit that about himself at Chelsea. So Martin, um, he had a good eye for a player and thankfully he had uh, Chris's and, and my in art. You, you talk to players who played under him at Celtic and they all hold him in such high esteem, Alan. And a lot of those guys have gone on to management as well. I mean, what was your, your thoughts about Martin O'Neill's style, not only of um, a coach, but as a man-manager? Um, I wouldn't I wouldn't put him down as a coach at all. Um, he was more of a man-manager who's properly cut out the cloth of Brian Clough. No doubt about that. Um, he had his staff with him, whichever job Martin had, whether it was Wickham, Leicester, Celtic, Aston Villa, Republic of Ireland, Sunderland. He took those staff with him and uh, that just shows his loyalty. Um, but he was very much a man-manager, 
bit of a psychologist. He just knew when to say the right thing at the right time uh, to the right person. Um, he realised we were all different. One player needed a different approach to another player. Um, and he was that, that's just what he was good at, man management. When you consider that the club had not won a treble since the late 60s, we hadn't progressed beyond Christmas in Europe since 1980. Martin O'Neill comes in and that team changes all that. Did they ever break down what the blueprint was? What was the master plan, Alan? I don't think there was a blueprint or a... Or a it might be in a green print. Um, <laughs> not or a, But um, I just think... I remember watching the interview when he first got the job at Celtic and he goes into the steps at the front of Celtic Park and he said, listen, I'll try my best to close the gap on, I think, was it 15 or 18 points the previous season? Celtic lost the league by. So I think his intentions was to close the gap first and foremost and then go on and win it. I think if, if you sat down with Martin now and asked him, I don't think he envisaged winning the treble in his first season. But it's no surprise because of the nucleus of, the, of a team that he inherited you know, your Paul Lambert, your Tom Boyd, your Jackie McNamara's, your Henrik Larsons, and then the players he was bringing in. It was no real surprise in the dressing room that we went on to win the treble, but if you'd have said at the start of the season, you'd win the league, and then we'll kick on from there. But the fact that we won the treble at the start of the season just says a lot about Martin and his staff and, and the players. A lot's been said, Alan, about your relationship with uh, the old firm Derby back then I mean very successful in terms of the goals and the success rate uh, with the victories but there were flash points what is it about that game that got to you in that respect I just think one of them wasn't a sending off by the way one of them wasn't a, definitely one of them wasn't a sending off but um, now nah, you, you get roped in a little bit and um, it is it's blood and thunder the, there's there's nothing like the old firm game there's there's derbies all over the world that are fantastic derbies but that's just got something about it that Celtic Rangers game the build up to it the I mean thank God most of them were like midday kickoffs because if the if a lot of them had been evening kickoffs the, the long days you know mm. waiting for a big game like that the day it becomes dragged out you know and um, thank God there were there were early kickoffs most of them but yeah you can get roped in and bizarrely down the line when I went into the coaching side you end up speaking to the players and telling the players about you know keep your discipline and and I wasn't being uh, hypocritical about that because I was trying to teach them to learn from my mistakes you know I'd done it three times twice probably being a red card one definitely not but um, you just try and pass on your knowledge to them to, to say listen 10 men in this game you ain't winning it so and I'd learnt that from my mistakes yeah, they were a strong side Alan and, and I think when you have that turnaround in that debut season um, it's, it's an astonishing feat which players did you gravitate towards you'd already spoken to Chris Sutton as you've explained which players became your kind of pals um, but we were in general we were quite a tight group um, it was uh, it had been Chris um, Jackie Mack mm. uh, Paul Lambert um, John Orton Lenny when they come in um, Henrik Johan Mialbi would often would spend a lot of time in hotels so we'd often sit around after dinner on an evening before a Saturday or a Sunday afternoon game and would spend a lot of time playing cards or having a coffee the staff would come and sit with us and would you know they'd pick their out our brains we pick their brains and trying to get the formation off them who who's playing tomorrow and all that kind of stuff so it was a tight group um chris chris was probably my, my closest pal chris sutton uh, we got really tight in those years but uh, in general it was the group in general was really tight 
I look at Martin O'Neill and I'm not sure if he was a disciplinarian or if he allowed the guys to go and get a bit of downtime. Was it somewhere in between? How how did he approach that? Yeah, he was... He, listen, he, he he knew what we needed. Um, he knew when we looked tired. He knew when we needed days off. He knew when we needed to go away for a couple of days as a group or he knew where he just wanted you to go and spend some time with your family. He was just... He was good at judging what we needed as a group and... Um, Listen, some days he might not give everyone a day off. He might just say to two or three, mm-hmm. you know, the older boys, Paul Lambert or, or Tom Boyd, you know, you go and have a couple of days. You don't need to train this week. Come back in on Thursday. And um, Very old school, but uh, he didn't often get it wrong. You know, when you're looking at um, Henrik Larson, obviously as a Celtic fan, we idolise him. What was he like in terms of his discipline and application? Was he any different from any of the other teammates? No, we, it was all... It was all coming really professional back then mm-hmm. when I joined Celtic, even before that. It was probably the mid-90s when all the, the diet and the sports science started coming in. So, no, Henrik was no different to anyone. We didn't have anyone in the dressing room, really, who was out of condition. Or Can I say that? I mean, John Orton might have 25 packets of hula hoops before the game sometimes. But, uh, no, we were all... We, we trained hard. We looked after ourselves. Yeah, we, we let our head down if the gaffer let us go for a night out or a day out golfing and a few beers or whatever. So um, we'd all get involved in that and Henrik would be no different. See, when you talk about Big John, I think if you remove that, you remove something from his game, Alan. Oh, yeah. He, uh, listen, I was pleased when he failed his medical at Rangers. So pleased when he signed for us because you want him in, you want him in our team, not their team, without any shadow of a doubt. He must have been a nightmare to play against. Completely different Henrik. Completely different as Sutty, um, but technically air, in the air, holding the ball up, uh, finishing. John was as good as anyone, and uh, like I said, was pleased when he failed his medical at Rangers and he come to Celtic. Yeah, oh, definitely. The following season, um, after having a clean sweep domestically, we started setting down markers in Europe. I remember the four-three game, memorable game against Juventus. Um, has been one of the best I've seen Chris Sutton performing. And at that stage, I think he was at a stage with England, for example, where he had more or less said, I'm not playing, um, and he wasn't going to be selected. Do you think that was his peak and he was good enough to be in and around the England squad at that point? Oh, I think he could have played upwards of 20 caps for England, Chris, had he not have had the fallout with, I think it was Glenn Hoddle in the FA um, over some incident with an England B squad or something, I don't know, but... Chris could have been an addition to any England squad with any manager with any players because he was so um, he could play anywhere he could play up front he could play holding midfield he could play at the back at a push um, so he'd, he'd have been if you're picking 22 players for a big you know World Cup squad or a European Championship squad someone who can play three positions and play three positions well what an addition that would be so I think, did he get one cap, Chris? I yeah. don't know, but um, no, for me, Chris could have played upwards of, I don't know, 25, 30 caps. When- Mobile phone companies say they offer home internet, but if their internet comes from a cell phone network, you should know. It's just phone internet, not home internet. Keep your home up to speed with Cox. Cox internet is faster and has more reliable download speeds than 5G home internet. Cox is the real home internet you're looking for. Based on Cox analysis of UCLA speed test intelligence data, Q3 2022 and Cox serviceable areas, visit cox.com slash internet for details. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more.
you break into the England squad and you're the first Celtic player to represent England whilst at Celtic, um, how difficult is it to integrate with a squad where you've got the London-based players, you've got guys from Manchester and Liverpool, or did you find it quite easy? I found it quite easy because a lot of the lads who were round about my age, I'd, I'd played with them in the in under-18s, under-21s, England teams, you know, especially United lads, Gary Neville, Phil Neville, Nicky Butt. Um, so I, I knew those lads. Um, Gareth Southgate was there. Um, even though I was playing for Celtic, Gareth, Gareth had been my captain at Villa. So Gareth kind of took me under his wing and gave us a few warning shots who to keep away from and see what I thought of the setup and what I thought of the manager and stuff like that. But listen, not a proud moment as a kid, like I said earlier. You want to play for Newcastle? Play for Newcastle if you've done that. What do you want? You want to play for your country? So after what I'd been through with the accident and stuff like that, and to eventually, I mean, I was 30, I think, when I got my England cap. So it was it was approaching nigh on the end. But it's still a proud moment. Absolutely. And again, in the record books um, for Celtic as well. Second season, we win the league, uh, but we lose the Scottish Cup. And it's the showpiece. It's the final game. How difficult is that going into a pre-season, Alan? Yeah, it's, listen, any no one remembers the losers, do they? So um, it was, it's always tough to take. But I think the best team in, the best team normally wins the league. Very rarely does the second best or the third best team win the league, and we we proved that season. Even though we lost the cup final, we, we we're still the best team in Scotland, and in my opinion, that is. Now we mentioned earlier the European aspirations. We had seen a sign that we might be able to compete. The following season was that season, almost twenty years ago, and you look at some of the guys that that are in that team, and they've spent some time down south, and two of the teams we play in that magnificent run are Blackburn and Liverpool. Did that add a bit of spice to the guys who had spent some time down there? Yeah, of course it does. Because, I mean, you don't feel like you've got anything to prove because you haven't. Because we were playing against, you know, you mentioned Juventus, Barcelona, AC Milan, Villarreal. We were playing good teams in in, in Europe, Stuttgart, uh, Celta Vigo, um, Porto, teams like this. So we, we fancied ourselves against anyone. and But these were... They were a good Blackburn team, you know. Dwight York, Andy Cole up front, um, Gary Flickcroft, who noised us up after the first leg, along with a manager, Graham Souness. But no, we fancied ourselves against them, and and like we did when we went to Anfield, we fancied ourselves there. And you like a goal against Liverpool. I mean, you scored in the final for Bolton against Liverpool. That free kick against Liverpool, you enjoyed it? Aye. Um, I don't know. I just, it's just, I don't know. I love playing in big games. I love the big games. I love the big atmosphere. I love the build up. I loved everything about it. Um, and I had a I had a decent record. I scored a goal for Bolton in the Premier League at Anfield as well, which that got match uh, goal of the month on match of the day, which that one doesn't get spoke about very often. But uh, it's normally the the UEFA Cup goal or the or the goal at uh, Wembley for Bolton. I. Obviously, the disappointment of Seville was followed up with the disappointment of losing the league on the last day. Um, but it's a season we look back on. I mean, as I say, I'm sure there'll be celebrations uh, of that season 20 years later next year. Do you think that at that point, though, it was time for Celtic to build on that on a European stage? I know we hadn't won the league that season, Alan. And do you think Martin O'Neill was backed sufficiently by the club? Um, no, I think looking back on that, he could have been backed more. Um, it just showed you what a good team we were, how far we got and ran ran that Porto team close. Uh, they went on and won the Champions League the following season under Mourinho. Um, so it just shows you how good they were. And I think with one or two additions to that team, we had we could have gone a step further, who knows, without a doubt. Mm. You go into the uh, European 
um, games again the following season. You, you beat Barcelona. You scored the goal. An incredible goal. I mean, again, you said you like the big games, Tomo, but I mean, that, that is picking the biggest of the big. Aye, I mean... I can remember the first 20 minutes against Barcelona and looking round at a few of the lads thinking are you feeling like I'm feeling because I was, I was breathing out my arse like, and, uh, and the lads are like yeah we couldn't get near them and the fact that we stayed in the game and kept it at nil-nil uh, then we had Rab sent off at half time they got Mota sent off at half time and then Saviola kicked out at me start the second off so it was 10v9 like it was like a game of basketball towards the end and uh, luckily I get one nodded down to us off Henrik and, and score the winning goal not many people get to say they scored the winning goal I, get, I, I, I mean that was some team Eto, yeah. Puyol Ronaldinho, Xavi Valdez in goal you know it was a proper Barcelona team and uh, no, it's a brilliant night that was You know I, I ask Celtic players this all the time the European games the Celtic versus Rangers games being on that park but now having watched last season and how it might have affected players you know that lack of energy the momentum uh, the positivity how important is that from the stands at Celtic Park I mean it must have been difficult I know there was pressure on because they're going for 10 in a row and uh, listen we all wanted that to happen for obvious reasons it hadn't been done before but it must have been tough I mean no excuses it must be tough playing games with no one in a stadium I mean I've done it before Um probably more so when you're a kid you go and play at these big grounds playing in a reserve game and there's no one there and you can hear all the shouting you can hear people kicking the ball people heading the ball it must have been so tough I would hate to have played an old firm game with no one in the crowd or even having opposition fans in the crowd must be tough just having a home support because that's that's what big games are about having both sets of fans going at each other and having the crack and having the banter having the rivalry but um it must have had an adverse effect on the players because, like you say, a full Celtic park, you're a man up. Well, you might not be a man up because the referee might be on this. It could be 12v12 then, couldn't it? But uh, no, a full Celtic park's definitely beneficial to the players, without a doubt. Yeah, I, I mean, you scored against Barcelona. We retain the lead title in the Scottish Cup. But it felt as though we were coming to the end of an era because Henrik Larson leaves, of course, and he goes to Barcelona. Um when you're a teammate of someone as pivotal and as influential as that, what's your thoughts for the season? Because you can't replace him. No, like you say, we could have had a huge pot of money to replace Henrik, but um, he was irreplaceable, wasn't he? So, um, yeah, listen, it probably definitely did leave the dressing room um, flat when he goes. And then you, you try and replace him, but you're not going to replace him, as we said. And, uh, yeah, it was, um, it was tough. But you've got to get on with it, you know, it's your job, you're getting paid, you're playing for a world-class, massive, huge football club, you've got to get on with it. The following season, again, disappointment at the end, losing the, the league on the last day, Black Sunday as it's called. Uh, we brought in Craig Bellamy, I thought he was a cracking signing from, from Newcastle. What type of boy was he? Was he integrated into the side pretty easy? He was, Um I didn't know Bellas at all. Um, obviously knew of him, knew people who played with him at Newcastle who said he was a little fiery so-and-so in the dressing room. Um, but he knew Chris Sutton from the early days at Norwich. Mm -hmm. So I think he knew he wasn't going to come into the Celtic dressing room and, and start causing havoc like he had at Newcastle with one or two people, players and staff at Newcastle. He got you know a few little uh, Barneys with, but... Um, I think he knew Chris before he came to Celtic, so he knew what Chris was about for a start. But it wasn't just Chris; there was there was strong people in that dressing room, uh, a lot stronger than Bellas. So um, no, but he was he was a good signing. Even though I think when we signed him in the January, we were eight points clear. 
But um, no, it was a good signing and um, one that we could have possibly took on a longer term deal had it not been, I don't know, about the funds. Mm. You know, again, as a Celtic fan, you're always thinking about what happens behind the curtain. So in the big games in Seville, we've heard some of the stories about team talks. But I tend to think about some of the guys you're mentioning there. And if you were having any kind of wobbles, surely you just look to your left and there's Chris Sutton, look to your right, there's Larson, and you go around them that way. And I'm pretty sure that confidence would have started to seep through the entire team. Yeah, I mean, before the game or half-time at the game, the manager was the only one that spoke. He didn't let his assistant, John Robertson, speak, didn't let Steve Walford speak, Martin spoke. And then when Martin finished speaking, he would go and get a cup of tea and then... John Roberts and Steve Walford would walk around the players individually and little pointers and have little chats and stuff like that. But the players police the dressing room themselves. You know, you, you look around the dressing room, you know, you, I don't know, Lenny, Sutty, Big John was on my right, Stillian was on my left, Henrik was on the corner there, Paul Lambert was there, Jackie McNamara, all people who had voices and had opinions. So if anything needed said or if anyone need dug out, if anyone wasn't doing their job, you get you got told. But it was... It was never really, um, it wasn't going to end up in fisticuffs unless Stillian took it one step too far one day with Bobo, but that's another story. But no, it was it was a team full of strong, strong men, without a doubt. How important were uh, Robertson and Walford to that dynamic? Brilliant, absolutely fantastic. The, the three of them, um, you knew who the boss was, you knew who the gaffer was, and then those two just, they were the link. Um, whether it was at the training ground or whether it was upstairs at Celtic Park when we're having lunch, whether it was um, on a you know out on a lads' day out on the golf course having a few beers, they just linked the staff and the players to one. They were absolutely marvellous at their jobs. I, I look at your high points of your Celtic career. You've won the England cap. You're in the history books for that goal against Barcelona, Liverpool, your Rangers goals, the trophies, uh, the run to Seville. You won us the Scottish Cup as well, Alan. I mean, what what moment do you look back on most proudly? Um, good question, really. There's there's that many highs, and obviously there's been lows as well along the way. And it's amazing that the lows are the feelings that stays with you. Mm. The highs, the winning, and the, the beating the Barcelona. As you, you wish you could bottle the high feeling, but it seems to be the low feelings that stay with you when you think about it or you talk about it now. You don't get a buzz when you talk about the Liverpool game or the, the run to Seville or the Barcelona game or the old firm games. But when you talk about losing the league at Kilmarnock or losing the league at Dunfermline, it, um, Motherwell, or losing Just the... Just slept there. I know, I know. <laughs> or, or, or losing in Seville. It's like, that's, they're the feelings that come back and yeah. still really annoy you. You just wish you could bottle the good feeling. So it's difficult to pick out one moment, but I think winning the treble in my first season was, was some achievement. You know, the disappointment of the Kilmarnock game and the Motherwell game and you're in an away dressing room, who is it you're then looking round to in that in that changing room to try and lift you, lift the team? I don't think there's much to be said really last day of the season. Um, there's not a lot can be said from anyone, whether it's a captain, whether it's Paul Lambert, Jackie or Boyd, whoever it was, or the manager. I just think it's that just needs time and space to, to try and let the wounds heal but I don't think they do but after we'd lost uh, Helicopter Sunday at Mother well we he not only does have you lost the league but the manager tells you in the dressing room at Fir Park that he's leaving after the cup final was that the first thing you hear now? that was the first we heard we didn't know anything of it yeah so it was like you've lost the league and the manager says I'm leaving so after all he'd done and achieved it Celtic his wife was poorly Geraldine thankfully she's fine now and um 
but we had to get up for a cup final the following Saturday against Dundee United, which was tough. Not gonna, not gonna lie. And again, you must be looking around. We've lost Henrik the previous season. Martin O'Neill's away. He's revolutionised the club. I mean, we're still seeing the effects to this day, Alan, of um, him turning that around. You know, because up until that point, we had a good season, a bad season, but he started domination. Um, and you're looking ahead to the following season. Um, are you thinking yourself that it's coming to an end at that point? Yeah, I think you do. Um, you know, I'd, I'd signed a. Obviously, I think I signed a five-year deal when I went, and then after three seasons, um, Martin O'Neill gives a gives a new contract. So he showed a lot of loyalty and faith, and then he tells you he's leaving. It's kind of like, oh, am I going to have a? Is my future going to lie here or not? I hung around for eighteen months under when Gordon Strachan was there, and it didn't quite work out. Yeah, I was approaching thirty-four, um, and maybe you do think, yeah, maybe my time's up, so you move on. You mentioned on our way down to the studio that um, you had met up with Martin recently. What's it like when he's in a room with all your old teammates? Is, is he still pretty much the gaffer that everybody looks up to? Ah, he's, he's still the gaffer, but he's a lot more relaxed and um, it's more. I'm gonna. It's it's more friendship now than than anything. But obviously, there's respect still there and everything. And he always has the last word. Even now, um, he always holds court. So as he always did, he still does. Um, anyone who went to the Hydro a few few months ago when we done the gig at the Hydro with the Gaffer and Henrik and Chris and, and Big John and Johan Mialbi, Lubo Moravchek, what a turnout it was, but he always has the last word. You know when Strachan comes in, I think uh, as a Celtic fan, we're looking at that as downsizing. You had Martin O'Neill who, when he comes into Celtic, is the best manager we could possibly appoint at that time. We're bringing in players ready-made from the English Premier League at that point. Um, but when Gordon Stratton comes in, it's almost as if there's a completely different approach. We're starting to strip away a lot of the bigger, more influential players who were there under Martin O'Neill, and we're bringing in probably cheaper alternatives. Uh, Alan, do you think that kind of thing was taken away from Gordon Stratton and that he was trying to strip some of the maybe the, the higher earners from the club? Yeah, I would. I don't think you're a million miles off. I think there was the the they'd been through a period and there was youngsters coming through and you know you look at you look at that team Martin's team if you want to call it Martin's team myself uh, approaching 34 Chris very similar age to me uh, John Hartson uh, Stillian Petroff had value in him because of his age Stillian was still only probably I don't know 26 27 so the, 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 there was value in Stillian in terms of transfer fee so Stillian moved eventually to Villa um, but I think yeah looking at myself Chris John I think Lenny was the only one who really stayed on um, part of Gordon well he was Gordon's captain and then went on to Gordon's coaching team so yeah I think it was probably Gordon come in and looked at it and thought yeah it needs freshening up you left for Leeds United initially on loan. You became the captain at the club. But I was reading just last night that fairly early on in your Celtic career, you started doing your badges. You had the plan to get into coaching, Tom. Or were you surprised that your teammate Lenny also went into that role or do you think he was ready-made? Um, no, because when I'd done my UFB licence, we'd done it at Fir Park with the, with the SFA. Lenny and I'd done it together, so... I always knew he wanted to do it and he always knew I wanted to do it but it was something I was interested in when I was after I had my car accident I had to start thinking out the box a little bit this might not be how I want it to be I might not be able to go and play three, four, five, six, seven hundred games I might have to start thinking about now 
So even in the early days when I was injured for 18 months, two years before I got back fit, luckily, I was even look, looking and watching it, coaches then, what they did, how the, the mannerisms and how they spoke to people. Um, probably not the throwing the teacups of uh, Jim Smith or anything like that at Newcastle at the time. God bless him. But uh, no, it was something I knew or I always wanted to do. Um, and yeah, your football career is not going to last forever. So I knew what I, when I finished that I wanted to do that. When the call comes from Lenny, uh, to come back to Celtic and you've enjoyed some great success as part of Lenny's team. Tell us about the dynamic of that, that coaching team with Mialbi, yourself, Neil Lennon, Gary Parker. Um, well, Lenny had Lenny'd been doing the same job at Celtic that I'd been doing at Newcastle, like a development role. They're developing the kids to get them ready to go into the first team or get them out on loan to go and get some experience so he'd kind of done his apprenticeship if you want and he felt I'd done my apprenticeship and he asked me to come in he said if I get the job full time would you come in as my coach and for me it was a no brainer going back to Celtic yeah I was at Newcastle with a probably a steady job probably a job that I could have held for years or got promoted eventually through the ranks at Newcastle coaching but uh, it was a, it was a big opportunity for me to go back to Celtic and work with Lenny Johan Mialbi was his number two Um Gary Park, I was there. Gary didn't do an awful lot of coaching. Gary was good around the players. Um, it was it was more myself. Lenny Lenny wasn't. A lot of people probably think Lenny was a bit like Martin O'Neill in terms of he was more of a man manager and mm. like a bit of old school. Well, Lenny Lenny like he could coach as well. He'd go out on the grass and he'd coach the team. He'd do his set up and how he wanted us to play and stuff like that. So no, it was good. We bounced off each other well. You start building a team and obviously in season two we win the league. Uh, but when I'm looking at that period as well, uh, there was a wee bit of pre- a big bit of pressure on the likes of Neil Lennon uh, off the park and on it. And you were in the midst of that, you know, you've spoken about what happened when um, Alan McCoyst and Neil Lennon come together in the shame game. Um, and also he's attacked at Tynecastle. Now, I think that when you see it on the pages of a newspaper or on uh, your computer screen, um, it takes away the the reality of what's happening. I mean, how difficult was that for Lenny, and how were you able to support him at that stage? I think a lot of people had to support him because um, it, it can't be easy. Well, it, it's not. I've seen it day to day, and um, I speak about it in depth in, in my book. Um, there's quite a lot in about what was going on around that period, and um, yeah, it's tough. And uh, he needed a support system around him, whether that was the board higher up, Myself, Johan, Gary Parker, um, support as I think rallied round him. A lot of people, a lot of people say it was, oh well, he brought it on himself. He brought it on himself. But listen, no one deserves bombs through the post and bullets and stuff like that. And that night we got rushed out of the, my local pub, the Drake, through um, playing clothes police because his life was in imminent danger. It's like what you know, we're just out having a, a sociable pint, nothing mad, and you're getting put into um, un, you know unmarked police cars and put in safe houses it's like wow it's football at the end of the day so it was it was madness you know you, you do speak in depth about various aspects of your time at Celtic and obviously your departure as well so get the book and have a good read at that as well aye it's all in the book all in it's depth all in there. there nothing's but, hidden nothing's hidden it's all there what, what I would ask you is that's really the first time Alan you've already had the fright early doors in your in your career which you said started making you think about a coaching career, but your career's ended at that stage. How difficult is that at that age to walk away from the game for I think twelve months? What when when I left Celtic as a coach? Yeah. Um, oh, it's tough. Um, it was it was obviously made public. It was front page, back page, um, and it's not nice. And I found it difficult. And um, 
yeah, it's, it's something you look back on now, and it's that's ten years ago. Now it's twenty twelve, so there's lots happened between then and now. And um, I'm going back to Celtic Park next month, and it'll be the first time I've been back to watch a game since since twenty twelve. So it's ten years, and I'm looking forward to going back. You know, I've I couldn't have gone back five years ago. It was too raw and everything that had gone on, and I didn't feel like I'd be welcome. But uh, seen a lot of people over the last few years, and now I'm looking forward to going back and seeing some old faces. You know, that, that's disappointing from a Celtic fan's perspective, but I understand it, Alan. But during that period, every time you've met Celtic fans, I'm sure that you've had a good relationship with us. Oh, absolutely. It's it's phenomenal wherever you are. It can be in Scotland, down south in England, on holiday, anywhere abroad. Um, not that we've been on holiday much in the last two years with this COVID, but uh, you bump into Celtic fans. It's just a huge club and... Yeah, they've always they've got nice words to say. They want to talk about the run to Seville. The teams will be in the old firm games, winning goals, red cards. Yeah, they, very rarely do you get a, a negative comment from a Celtic fan. So now they've been brilliant with me. Now, Alan, you've been out promoting your book. It's a great addition to the Celtic canon of literature and hopefully we'll see you um, out promoting it on on the live stage as well. Um, we'll have the, the links to the book underneath the video, so check them out. Alan Thompson has joined me here at the offices in the studio of the Stretford Paddock, so thank you to the guys uh, for letting us use your magnificent facility and thank you to Alan Thompson for joining me on a Celtic State of Thanks, Mind. Paul. Appreciate it. Thank you. Mobile phone companies say they offer home internet. But if their internet comes from a cell phone network, you should know. It's just phone internet, not home internet. Keep your home up to speed with Cox. Cox internet is faster and has more reliable download speeds than 5G home internet. Cox is the real home internet you're looking for. Based on Cox analysis of UCLA speed test intelligence data, Q3 2022 and Cox serviceable areas, visit cox.com internet for details. It's the Marketer's Report. This week, Patrizia Spagnoletto, Global Chief Marketing Officer, Direct Consumer for Warner Brothers Discovery, weighs in on the difficult task of building and retaining consumer trust. Trust is a really hard thing to build and a really easy thing to destroy, and we have to be very respectful about that. Our partnership with iHeart has really helped us build that trust and that relationship with the on-air talent. The best thing for us to do is to build a relationship with our consumers. And if those consumers have a relationship with the DJs that are on air, then we want to build on that. House of the Dragon, which was one of our most successful, if not the most successful campaign we've ever done for a show, audio is a core part of that. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. Not just a media company, iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Sports Social Podcast Network. 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 Sports Social Podcast Network.